Hi, I'm John Papola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I really dive deep into the world of money and macroeconomics, especially in the backdrop of this coronavirus uh, crisis that we're all going through with uh, economist Scott Sumner. Scott is the director of the program on monetary policy at the Makeda Center. Scott is also the author of the blog, The Money Illusion, and he's an economist that really has helped shape the way I understand what happens in the macro economy. How does the Fed's behavior interact with what we see in the world? How should we think about things like interest rates and inflation and um, quantitative easing and all these things we hear about in the media now again, unfortunately, 10 years after we first became fixated on them in the 2008-9 financial crisis. So with that, I hope you enjoy and hope you have the uh, wherewithal for this very long conversation with economist Scott Sumner. So Scott Sumner, I am excited to be talking to you because when I first started getting interested in macroeconomics back during the financial crisis, you know, I, I really started the journey with sort of popular uh, popularizations of Hayek and these ideas of uh, business cycle theories. And I just kept um, going down the rabbit hole. But I, I, I quickly came across this idea of stabilizing nominal GDP. And that led me to your blog. And your blog has been maybe my single most frequented economics blog over the long haul over the past decade. So I really I appreciate you coming on and and talking to me about everything that's happening. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I am. Um, what I'm hoping we could do, because our 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 episodes here cover a pretty broad range of subjects, and you're the first monetary economist to come on, is to to take a step way back, and I'm going to try to put myself in that beginner's mind and just ask basic questions and build us back up to this macro picture and and what the what's going on in the world right now on uh, March twentieth. 2020, um, where the particular day matters a lot with the fat, the pace of the news cycle. Um, what, what is money? What, what is it? Uh, that's a good question. So, you know, the textbook definition gives you, I guess, three roles, medium of exchange, unit of account, store of value. Um, I guess the, there's differences of opinion on how to define money. But uh, from my perspective, the role that's really important is um, what you might call the medium of account. That is, it's the thing in which prices are denominated. Okay. So um, in the US, the US dollar is what we use to measure values. And Although money has other roles like, say, store of value, there's lots and lots of other stores of value. So it's not a particularly distinctive role of money to say it's a store of value. 
What really makes money distinctive is that other things are priced in terms of money, not apples or oranges or ounces of gold. Although at one time, of course, gold was the way prices were measured. So uh, because prices and wages and debt contracts and all of that stuff are priced in money terms, that's why money is important. So then I, I would define money as the asset in which other things are priced in terms of. Now, what about um, the medium of exchange? You know, we use money to buy and sell things instead of bartering. Um, help me understand if I'm coming into this conversation totally cold, that's probably the use that people most readily right. understand. And it's, it, it's, I think one of the reasons is the, the, the use as a medium of exchange is really closely linked to its use as a medium of account. That is, we find it convenient to use money to buy things basically because the price of money is fixed, right? A dollar is always a dollar. So it's a very convenient medium of account. You could imagine a scenario where the medium of account and the medium of exchange were two different things. Right? You you measured prices in terms of, I don't know, gold or something, and then you used some medium of exchange that had a value that fluctuated in terms of gold. But we don't usually do that. We usually use the same thing as a medium of exchange to buy other goods as we do to measure prices. Right. So uh, I don't know if this distinction is clear. Other things that you know some people might regard as money, like say a treasury bill, I don't regard as money because it's not a medium of account. We don't price things in terms of treasury bills. We price things in terms of U.S. dollars. So but, um, basically, <clears throat> in in the U.S., uh, the two roles, medium of account, that is how we make and medium exchange, the thing we use to buy goods and services are basically the same. The, um, where, where does money come from? Uh, the, the, I, uh, you know, you hear the stories of people in prison who start to use, uh, you know, uh, cigarettes, cigarettes, to, right. To, to exchange, uh, to exchange <laughs> goods and services in prison. Right. Um, so there's these properties that um, make up money. I mean, most of us think of money in terms of, well, it's what the treasury prints, it's U.S. dollars, and that's the only legal medium of exchange is U.S. dollar. But um, mm -hmm. the money predates that, right? So, right. you know, to really be super basic, like how should we think of that almost elemental money as an invention of people. Right. So people, um, maybe through some Hayekian process, uh, fixed on one particular good as being useful as a medium of exchange and a way of measuring prices. And uh, as you know, throughout history, different commodities were often used. Uh, when you get into more modern times, usually gold or silver was chosen as the commodity that served as money. And then there was kind of an interesting transition. So <clears throat> there was a period where, you know, further back in history, people actually used metal types of uh, coins and so on in exchange. 
Over time, gradually, we evolved a system where gold continued to be the medium of account, but we often used paper currency that was backed by gold for everyday transactions because it was more convenient. And the ratio between the currency and the gold was fixed under the gold standard. So a, a dollar bill was a promise to pay so much gold on demand. So we kind of had, in a sense, a dual monetary system for quite some time where both you could think of money either as gold or as currency notes. And then when we got became dissatisfied with the gold standard for various reasons, we started to move away from gold. And since there were already currency notes circulating that were backed by gold, we found it convenient to just start using those currency notes as money and drop the gold backing. So we sort of stumbled into this fiat money system one step at a time. There wasn't really a, a plan, at least initially, to do it that way, but it, it, it worked out that way. And once we um, went to fiat money, then essentially the value of money became determined by the supply and demand. There's a demand for it because it's useful in transaction. There's a certain supply determined by the government and then the interaction of those determine the value of money. Whereas under the previous commodity system, it, the value was partly based on the value of the metal, gold, or silver as a commodity. Although even there, because gold was widely used to back up money, uh, its monetary value also played a big role in determining its value, not just its usefulness in jewelry and so on. Yeah, this is interesting. So this... Um... Uh, the money, the, just taking gold. So the way I understand that is the benefits of gold or is that it's a, it's uniform and it's scarce and it's divisible. So you can melt it down into different sized coins and or bars and, and, and have them be equal in weight. And so you can use that kind of weight. Uh, you know, that's why I like the, the, the English pound is called a pound for a reason. Right. Um, but that Pound interaction, sterling. yeah, but that interaction between um, the value of of the let's stay, let's stay on gold for a second. The value of gold for its use as jewelry or as a conductive metal versus its value as that medium of account where I go out and use a, you know, you use a whatever the unit was a dollar's worth of gold. Um, how did those two things interact? Because you've got this thing U S dollars. You can't really do anything else with It's just paper. So that you don't have that interaction between, well, there's some other use for this thing that we use for exchange. How did that interaction work when it was a commodity? Like what was what, and what like, what did that mean that you you could effectively have, money used for something else? Well, I think if you, I mean, you could sort of like do a thought experiment where you go back to a barter system and then you have, you know, essentially many different objects that are used to purchase other goods and services. And then it becomes convenient to pick just one. Uh, you mentioned prison camps where they chose cigarettes as convenient. Um, and so societies gradually over time picked one. Um, there are certain um, 
network externalities, I think you'd say, a sort of convenience associated with a single type of money. Um, just as we sort of socially agree on one language to communicate and so on. Um, and once that's done, then the commodity sort of has a dual purpose. So if, if silver was chosen as money, then silver continued to be used for industrial purposes, but is also used for money. And you have silver coins and so on. But then once you get to that point, you can easily create... Um, other means of exchange that are backed by silver to economize on the use of silver and uh, like currency that's backed by silver. And so there's sort of a natural progression where you start with barter, um, you, you move to a system where one commodity is chosen as a medium of account because it's convenient to have a single way of measuring prices. Then you adopt a system where you use both metal coins and paper money backed by that metal because it's more convenient to do it that way than just use metal coins as money and so on. And then as, as I said, more recently, you get into a scenario where you start to drop the metallic aspect of the monetary system and just go with the paper money. So um, I think most people that have, are familiar at all with this idea that there was once a gold standard or a, a money backed by a precious metal. Um, they'll say, well, see now our money doesn't have any value. It's not backed by anything, but when it was backed by this shiny metal, well, that was, that was real. And now the money's not real. Um, What's well, true about uh, that and what's false about that? <laughs> I guess I think that's sort of false. I mean, I think it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. When you say they think it has no value, I think what you mean is they think it has no intrinsic value. Right. Obviously, a $100 bill has value because you can go out and buy things with it. But I, I, I presume they mean no intrinsic value and it has no value outside of its use as money. Um, now, some people would argue that um, gold has relatively little value uh, other than the fact that people consider it valuable. I mean, it does have some value as, I guess, jewelry and so on. But, you know, even under the gold standard, gold's value was, was mostly due to its acceptance as money. With, without yeah. that, its value would have been much, much lower. Yeah, this notion that... um. I think there's something about just the, the like the physical qualities like of of gold that make this feel like there's something more solid or something more real than this paper that's printed that you know is only valuable because it's printed by the government in a particular way and and is accepted but I guess um but that's to to some extent that's true of gold. I mean you say it's it's a solid metal you know, but so is copper and zinc and iron, and those don't have very much value. Um, it's, I think, you know, when you, when you really look closely at gold, its value is because other people think it's value. You, you can have a, a, a gold necklace and, you know, people will look up to you. They think you're wealthy, so on. So it's sort of a psychological thing. And the same is true of currency. 
Um, I mean, I suppose there's some differences, you know, with currency, if the government issuing it collapses, it has no value, whereas a gold coin would have value if you had to flee to another country. So I don't mean to suggest they're identical, um, but I mean, you can kind of think of it this way. Um, let's just think of the total stock of paper money in an economy as a sort of like capital stock. That is, it's, it's, it's useful in a physical sense of facilitating transactions. And if we didn't have that stock of money, our economy would be less efficient because it'd be harder to make transactions, right? So it's a little bit like, the, say, motor oil plays in an automobile. I mean, motor oil doesn't make the car move. You need you know, gasoline and engines and all that to make the car move. But it sort of smooths out the frictions in the automobile, in the engine. and you know, uh, at first approximation, money doesn't really cause any wealth to produce. I mean, we, we need real resources, labor, capital, land, and so on. Money merely facilitates transactions, but still that's an important role. So by doing that, it has a certain value to society. And that value is probably roughly uh, its face value. So if, it, if, if in America, currencies oh a little less than two trillion dollars then maybe that currency stock has about two trillion in net present value of facilitating transactions over time that's how much people value it at because they're willing to hold that much wealth in the form of currency which earns no interest now i know there's not much interest to be earned anyway today but when interest rates were five percent people held a lot of currency despite earning no interest because they felt it was convenient for their transactions purposes. So, I mean, a stock of paper money does have real value associated with it. If it's well-managed, it can be used in transactions. And um, it's not that different from gold, maybe slightly different because of, as what I said, it, it sort of requires a, the government producing it to continue existing Right, we're not we're not produce too much of it. I mean, there was even a case in I think Somalia or someplace like that where the government collapsed and people kept using the currency out of habit for a while. Uh, I don't know the details of that story, but uh, you know th that does illustrate that I think it it has some value, and um, there's a lot of debate about why it has value. Um, I have certain opinions on that, but um, it, it certainly has usefulness in transactions. So um, the, one of the other things that I hear and that, you know, is often, often gets embodied in the occasional viral sort of message or video or is this idea that money is debt. I, I, I don't fully understand where this comes from, but it's, um, it's it's something that seems to be you know more from sort of the syndicalist or the sort of um, more uh, academic left. But what is that? I what have you heard this concept? I yeah. imagine you have this notion that so, money is debt. Like what does that mean? Like the idea that well, if we pay off all our debt, the money will go away. I I don't know where that comes from. Can you explain that to me? Right. So um, fallacy. what is the fallacy? I'm not even sure I understand what the fallacious claim is that it's being that's being. Yeah, made. I've generally not regarded money as debt, but I think it's a little bit of a debatable point, if you will. Um, if money was gold, 
if we were back on the gold standard, I don't think it would make any sense to view gold as debt. Um, but what about paper money issued by a government? So um, to me, it's a little bit analogous to the question of whether our social security obligations are a debt that the federal government has that's comparable to um, treasury bonds, which are clearly a, a government debt. And some people will say the social security obligations are a debt because we have to pay future benefits to people. Others will say, no, it's not really a debt because there's no legal obligation to pay any amount of social security. It's just we'll pay whatever Congress wants to pay over time. And you could say money's a little bit like that. Like if a central bank issues a lot of money, say during a financial crisis, and if in the long run that would produce a lot of inflation, if not later pulled out of circulation, then you could say, well, it's sort of like a debt if we think there's an implicit government promise to keep inflation at a low level. And if you think there's no implicit government promise to keep inflation low, then they could just print the money and it's not a debt. They could leave it out there forever and we would just... Uh, suffer from the inflation tax. So whether you view um, money as debt, I think is a little bit like how you view social security obligations. I want to make sure I understand that because it, it um, so there's an old video that talked that, that, that included this, but I've heard others like um, I think David Graeber and other sort of not monetary economists generally, but macro sort of political commentators have often talked about this. I think the way they've sometimes talked about it is, well, the way uh, our system issues money is by buying treasury bonds. And so there's this kind of debt. Our money is backed by debt that without the debt of like, without treasury bond debt, there wouldn't be any money. Or that it, uh, and, well, and this that's might the way be, we uh, do it, yeah. but we don't have to do it that way. We could just give it away or something. There's other ways to inject money into the economy. Um, and it wouldn't even have to be given away. We could um, inject it through some method that we already are engaged in, like we could pay government salaries with newly created what's called base money, uh, currency and, and bank reserves. And um, we don't typically do it that way. The Fed does buy bonds, issues new money as the money stock. But it's not the only way of doing that. I don't think that's really the decisive factor with, with debt. Let me go back to this example of uh, issuing a lot of money when there's a financial crisis and a high demand for liquidity. Um, as you probably know, in, in quote, normal times when interest rates are positive, if the government issues an enormous amount of money, it can create hyperinflation, right? And we've seen this in Zimbabwe, Venezuela, and other places. Yep. Um, the Weimar Republic. So, pardon, yeah. And, and numerous other examples. And even over long periods of time in Brazil, Argentina, and so on, there's enormous amount of data that suggests that when interest rates are positive, flooding the economy with lots of currency um, creates a lot of inflation. Now. You can argue that when interest rates are zero and there's a high demand for liquidity, you can, for a short period of time, inject a lot of money in the economy without um, creating a lot of inflation. But 
Implicit in that is the assumption that if we go back to normal and interest rates go back above zero, you'd have to pull that money out of circulation, that extra money, or else you'd get a lot of inflation. And if your attitude was, well, we'll just have the inflation, we don't care, then clearly that money is not a debt to the federal government. They're not going to pay it off at any point. They're just going to put it out there. And if it loses value, that's tough luck for the people holding money. But if the government has a commitment to, say, 2% inflation, there might be an obligation to remove some of that money from circulation to keep inflation down at 2% once the crisis is over. And or another way of doing that, and this gets even closer to your debt example, is they could keep the money in circulation and start paying interest on it so that people hold the money and it doesn't create a lot of inflation. And to some extent, that's what the Fed did in this QE in program in the, in the Great Recession. So they injected a lot of reserves. When we got out of the crisis in 2015 and 2016 and interest rates started rising above zero, normally all that extra money would uh, create a lot of inflation. Well, instead, they paid interest on bank reserves. They paid interest to the banks to just sort of sit on the money. And they kept raising the interest rate they paid to banks so that all that extra money in circulation wouldn't create the inflation that it would have if they weren't paying interest. Now, if you think of those interest payments on bank reserves, that's kind of like debt, right? The Fed is having to pay interest on this money they've injected into the economy. When they first injected it, the interest rates were close to zero, so it wasn't really very noticeable. But as the interest rates get higher, then it becomes clear that it is a, actually a debt if there's a commitment to keep inflation low. Again, with no commitment, like in uh, Zimbabwe or someplace like that, it's not effectively a, a debt. It's just like an inflation tax on the public. So um, before we... Uh move on to inflation um i want to make sure i understand when i think of a debt at a fundamental level a debt has a creditor so i if i have a um if i make a loan to somebody they are now in debt to me they have to pay me back maybe with interest maybe not but um but they're in they, they have an obligation to return the money that I've lent that I've lent them and or vice versa. If I, if I, if I go to the bank and borrow a hundred thousand dollars to build a house, um, over time, I have to pay that back. That's, that's debt. There's right. Debt. In the, in the case you're describing in terms of thinking about money as debt, I have a stack of a hundred thousand dollars in cash. In what way in the world you're describing do, do I, as the holder, that current holder of that pile of cash, have an obligation to return it to someone? Okay, good question. Let's go back to the gold standard and think about how paper money was debt in that case. And then we'll go up to the recent example. So under the gold standard, if you had a $100 bill, uh, at that time, you viewed it like a modern person would view a check that someone gave them. Right. So today, if you get a check from someone, you might take it to the bank and say, 
I hope this check is good. I hope to get some real money for this check. I hope to be able to cash it in and get some currency. Well, 100 years ago, if you had currency, your attitude might be, I hope this currency is good. I hope I can take it to the government and get the amount of gold that's promised on the currency note. So essentially, the currency note 100 years ago was an obligation for the government to pay you a certain amount of gold on demand. You see what right. I mean? So in that sense, or, or, a currency or, or, note or in, is a type of debt. Or in the case of um, the pre-central bank era, just the uh, private banks. So Private banks, that, the same thing, right? So exactly. People that have, don't aren't familiar with this, um, back before the Fed or the central bank in Canada in particular, which had this longer, um, there were there were banknotes. They looked like money, but they were literally like a Wells Fargo banknote, a hundred dollars with Wells Fargo's name on it, and and it was basically like Scott is saying: you would take it to a Wells Fargo bank, they would give you a hundred dollars in gold if you wanted that gold, but you would also more likely use it to spend, and it would end up maybe you would give you would pay a worker with it, and that worker maybe didn't bank at Wells Fargo; they maybe banked at a different bank, and they would go deposit that banknote at their bank and that bank would then get the gold from Wells Fargo, right? Is that how that worked? That there was sort of, you know, it, it was like, it was like a, it was like checks, but it was still very cash like in the way you could pay people with banknotes and they could deposit those yeah. banknotes in the, in other banks. Is, am I, am I explaining that correctly? Yeah. Uh, I'm not an expert on that, but it was, I believe that's right. They could just uh, uh, use the, currency in circulation, uh, you know, for transactions. And then if they're, if they wish they could take it back to the issuing bank and, and get it converted into gold or silver, whatever the backing was. So, so yeah. So in that case, those notes are, 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 um, redeemable. Right. Um, they're not, they're still not quite like a debt though, in a sense. Right. I mean, they are in a sense that they're redeemable into another form. They're convertible into another form. There's an let me put it this way. Help me think about this. Well, I don't, again, it gets into semantics, I guess. Um, There's definitely an obligation to um, sort of pay off that currency on demand. So if, if, if people come back to the bank and issuing bank and ask for the currency note to be converted into gold, they have an obligation to do so. Um, imagine a loan you made where you could call it back at any time. You you loan someone $100 under the provision that you can get your money back from them whenever you ask for it. They would sort of be in debt to you, right? So you could go yeah. to them at any time and say, I'd like the loan I gave you to be repaid. And you could ask them even to repay it in gold or something. So I do think there is a certain like debt like quality to that situation. But I mean, I suppose it's a matter of semantics. I, I wouldn't want to push that point too hard. To sure. me, these questions are the, the real question is, well, what are the implicate what are the practical implications of the debate about whether currency is um, a form of debt? And, that to and- me is more important than whether we want to call it debt or not. Yeah, I um so so bef- I think that's going to become important when we talk about this monetary policy issues but before we do what is inflation? Like what what how what is that word 
mean and and how does it happen? Well, the standard definition of inflation is a rise in the price level, which is the, the rise in some sort of measure of the average price of goods and services. There's other definitions of inflation that have been used throughout history, but um, that that's the one that sort of standard in the textbooks today. And again, you know, the definitions are not important. If someone insists that inflation is like an increase in the money supply or a fall in the price of gold or some other metric, then I say, fine, well, let's just talk about that specific definition of what it implies. But the standard definition used in the textbooks is a, the rate of increase or decrease if it's deflation in a price index for a wide variety of goods and services, such as the consumer price index or one of the others. Um, now, in my view, there's no um, sort of underlying uh, hard and fast concept that's measured there. So it makes no sense to ask, does the CPI accurately measure inflation? Because it's not clear what we're even trying to accurately measure. We've never really defined what we mean by a rise in the price of something. Right. The only place we would have a fairly clear idea of what inflation meant is if you had some commodity that didn't change over time. But most commodities change over time. So it's a little bit fuzzy as to what we mean by a price increase for a car or a personal computer or, you know, a telephone or something. Commodities where it's sort of clear what we're talking about are like, 87 octane gasoline or things like that, where, you know, it's pretty clear what we mean by a price change. Since we don't have a very clear concept of what prices mean, all of these measures of inflation will be sort of fuzzy concepts, that is approximations. And there's no single right measure of inflation. But yeah, so, so, it's useful to talk about it in general terms, I think, as long as we're aware it's not precise. I mean, because I, I feel like the two um concepts that we that the average person hears about when they think it, when when it comes to money or the federal reserve or any of any anything about the subject of money is in is what's inflation and you know prices going up and um or going down but mostly going up and um mm. interest rates what are interest rates doing and are interest rates high or low and does that mean that the fed is printing a lot of money or not printing enough money or printing too much money. And one of the things I've learned from reading your work is, um, and I know you stand on the shoulders of giants like Milton Friedman in a lot of this, but that, uh, that, that those relationships are not anywhere near uh, the, what, what they're made out to be in the pub in the press. So um, we often hear like we are right now. Oh, for well, the fed is, printing a lot of money and they're pushing interest rates down. Um, but how, um, how should I think about, this is maybe an impossibly, this opens up an impossibly com complex way to answer this, but you know, is, is there, is there really, is there a relationship between inflation and interest rates? What, um, how should I think about that? Yes, but the relationship is kind of complicated and, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to explain. I'll, I'll try my best. Um, in the long run, there's often a positive correlation between inflation and interest rates. 
And um, when inflation is very high in a country, especially for a period of years, interest rates tend to be high. And that's because lenders demand a higher return to compensate for the loss of purchasing power uh, due to inflation. And because borrowers are willing to pay a higher interest rate knowing that inflation will push up the value of the assets they invest in. So inflation and interest rates are definitely positively correlated over longer periods of time. Uh, for American listeners old enough to remember the 1970s, that was a good example of high inflation, high interest rates. On the other hand, there's a widespread perception that cutting interest rates is an easy money policy and also a widespread perception that easy money leads to higher inflation. So if we start to think about that, it starts to get kind of confusing because like, wait a minute, if low interest rates are an expansionary policy that should lead to high inflation, how does that match up with what I just said about inflation and interest rates being positively correlated? Right. So Fed cuts right. rates and, and now we're worried about inflation taking off or vice versa. Right. So, but so what, which is like, if we want high inflation, what do we do? Do we have the Fed raise interest rates to a high level because the two are correlated? Or do we have the Fed cut interest rates to a low level because we think that easy money will lead to more inflation? And there's, believe it or not, there's still debate among economists about this point. I use the phrase never reason from a price change. It, we, we shouldn't even be talking about the effect of changes in interest rates because it always depends on what is causing interest rates to change. So you said um, a moment ago that there's this perception that the Fed is pushing interest rates downward and printing a lot of money. I could rephrase that this way. My perception is that the Fed is following interest rates downward and injecting far too little money in the economy, even though it is increasing the money supply. So um, we have to be careful in interpreting all of these variables, money supply, interest rates, inflation, and we have to do so in context. Uh, we have to know why interest rates changed before we make any judgments about what it means. Now, in the recent cycle, the current crisis has depressed what economists call the equilibrium interest rate, the, the rate that would be appropriate to keep the economy on a, in equilibrium in some sense or to keep inflation stable at 2%. It can be defined in different ways. But whatever way you define the equal interest rate, it's almost certainly falling very, very sharply. And then with the delay, the Fed reduced its target interest rate. But I wouldn't call that the Fed pushing interest rates lower. I would call that the Fed following a collapse in market interest rates with a belated cut in their uh, target interest. So, so I, that distinction's subtle, but it's important. And it's really hard for a lot of people to, to wrap their minds around that because we're so used to looking at the Fed controlling interest rates on a day-to-day -day basis. And we, we don't understand the constraints on the Fed and the sense in which it's following the market. So I think what would be a, another sort of helpful um, basic question is, let's assume for a minute we're on a, we're in a sort of um, stylized light environment, a kind of a, 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 a semi-modern modern desert island. So we've got stable money. 
Um, there's no crisis. Life is going about, people are going about their daily business. Um, and in that normal environment, we'll call that like the equilibrium, uh, imaginary equilibrium. What determines interest rates if I go to the bank and I want a loan? What, is the, what are the things, assuming stable money, stable macroeconomics, nobody's freaking out and hoarding money under their mattress. Um, what, what, what are the factors that go into the interest rate I would pay on a loan in a bank? Well, the standard model, which I, th I guess is appropriate, is that you can think in terms of a sort of supply and demand framework. Uh, you could use the phrase supply and demand for loanable funds. That is how much people are willing to lend at various rates, how much people are willing to borrow at various interest rates. And then there's one interest rate where the amount people are willing to lend is equal to the amount they're willing to borrow. Some people use savings and investment, uh, which is sort of looking at it from a flow, the uses of income. Some income goes into saving. Um, a higher interest rate induces more people to save and a higher interest rate discourages investment projects. So there's one interest rate where the amount people want to save is the amount people want to invest in capital formation. So there's some notion of a supply and demand framework that you know would determine interest rates in that environment. And um, I don't know, so that would be where I would start, I guess. So, so um, I go to the bank and, and I, I want to borrow $1,000 for a certain amount of time, let's say a year. Um, I'm going to pay one interest rate. But if I want to borrow that same $1,000 and, and pay it back over five years, I'm going to pay a different interest rate, right? Why is that? Well, again, it would be supply and demand. Uh, it could be people are more reluctant to lend you money for a longer period of time. So you'd have to pay a higher rate, um, perhaps. Um, typically, you know, governments, for instance, have to pay a higher rate uh, for longer term loans. Not always, but most of the time. Um, but there's other factors involved as well. The um, longer-term rates are influenced by what people think short-term rates will be in the future. So if you think short-term rates are about to fall sharply, you might actually be willing to lend money five years at a lower interest rate than you'd lend for one year because you want to lock into a certain rate before market interest rates fall. In the financial you know, media, that's inverted yield curve that's when longer term interest rates are lower than short term rates so it's going to depend on a number of factors um let me just uh, get back to the the central bank question a little bit because yeah um, this is so crucial to it and I, I don't know if this analogy will help maybe it's a little bit of a stretch but if we're thinking of a, a greyhound bus going over the rocky mountains and you know following a mountain road up and over the mountains between two cities and we think about what determines the path of that bus i think there's kind of two ways to think about it one way is to say well the path of the bus is determined by the bus driver he turns the steering wheel and that tells us whether the bus goes left or right 
But at another level, the path of the bus is kind of determined by the road. There's, <laughs> there's a highway, there's guardrails. The bus driver is very, very reluctant to just drive the bus right off the cliff, right? So you can think of the, the path of the road as in some sense determining the path of the bus. Even though, technically speaking, the bus driver, moment by moment, determines that path by adjusting the steering wheel and could theoretically steer the bus right off the highway into a, a canyon. And I think monetary policy is kind of like that. We tend to think of the Fed controlling interest rates on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, adjusting their target interest rate. But at a deeper level, interest rates are really determined by deeper market forces. And the Fed, like the bus driver, kind of has to adjust interest rates to follow along with those market forces. Because if it didn't, the economy would sort of fly off the cliff. And we would sort of like impeach all the people at the Federal Reserve. We would abandon the monetary system and try something else. That's sort of what happened in the early 1930s when the Fed did such a bad job, we basically changed the rules of the monetary system. But um, they basically kind of have to follow the economy, even though technically, moment by moment, they're setting short-term interest rates. Just as moment by moment, the bus driver sets the path of the bus by adjusting the steering wheel. And so you can kind of look at the determination of interest rates in two different ways. You can say, well, they're determined by the Fed on a day-to-day -day basis, or they're determined by deeper market forces that push them up and down. And I can't say either approach is wrong necessarily, but I kind of believe that the deeper market forces view of interest rate determination is more useful just as I would say, if I was trying to predict the path of the bus between you know, Denver and Salt Lake City, I'd kind of look at the roadmap and say, well, here's where I think the bus is gonna go. Like, and I don't care which person is driving the bus. I'm pretty sure they're not gonna wanna drive it into a canyon. Does that analogy help at all? Yeah, of... I mean, I think, um, you know, if I could sort of su summarize what I think you're, what I think how I think you're explaining it. If if um, if we're in a world where all all of a sudden, for some reason, some real reason out there in the world, not just a government policy change or um, every you know, on average, people want to save a lot more. They want to put more. They want to save more money. Um, it be you know. Uh, uh, you know, a big pop star writes a song about how they how saving money makes you cool, <laughs> and and a new generation is saving more money than anyone. You know, they're spending less, they're saving more. That's going to push interest rates down, irregardless of the Fed. Yeah, and the, uh, I mean, right? they, and so, you and know, so, eventually so, look, the Fed might resist that, for uh, you know a week or two, but things will get so bad that the Fed, even though the Fed said two weeks ago, uh, we don't think we'll have to cut rates. Two weeks later, they may cut them by a hundred basis points. Right. And, 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 um, and let's make it more realistic. Yeah. Let's not talk about a pop star. Let's say people suddenly for some crazy reason decide to save more because they think that going out and spending at restaurants and bars and vacations might cause them to get sick and die. Right. That, yes. That's why they save more. Right. Now it's no longer such a far-fetched example. 
what would that do to interest rates? Well, it would depress interest rates very rapidly. And the Fed would probably follow along with cuts in its target interest rate after the market interest rate determined on, you know, market rate on government bonds had already fallen before the Fed cut rates, which is based on recently. So, so yeah, so um, coming to the present moment, which in some respects could just as easily apply to 2008, but obviously we're, we're going through this unbelievable moment in global history right now where mm -hmm. um you know day by day we're getting news of governors shutting down mandating that no one can work and has to accept accept out of their home and uh all of this all of this frightening stuff i'm talking to you from my bedroom are the team at emergent order is all working from home right now it's um it, you know it's a frightening time so one of the things that's happening is the Fed is taking these measures. They're announcing that they're letting rates go to zero and they're um, doing this quantitative easing, saying 700, five, five, 700 billion, 500 billion, whatever. Uh, it's hard to keep track and hard to add it up and keep a tally, but the, they're going to inject all this money into the economy by buying... Um, by buying bonds and mortgage-backed securities, and basically taking that those at those assets off the hands of, I guess, banks, and replacing it with cash in the bank in the in the in these banks' accounts. Um, what's how should we think about what they're doing in the context of this conversation we're having? So I mean, you know, what because because obviously there's a group of people who look at that and say we're going to have hyperinflation. Like, what are they doing? And um, and yet, it might be that they're not even doing enough. So help me understand the moment we're in right now, where the you know, uh, with what the actions the Fed is taking, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ultimately get us to the, the, your ideas of nominal income targeting and different ways of thinking about this instead of inflation and interest rates. But um, I, I want to stay in that vernacular that people hear. And try to understand what's happening now through that through that lens. Right. So one aspect of of this crisis is a increased uh, demand for liquidity. People are more likely to hold because it's a relatively safe asset. Um, and here, when we think about money created by the Fed, by the way, I should say that there's actually two money the Fed creates. One is currency, like you have in your wallet, and the other reserves banks keep uh, deposits in reserve and combined are called the monetary base so that's the type of money that the fed controls and when people say the fed is printing money or creating money they're really talking about base money currency and bank so people wish to hold more of those during a crisis especially bank reserves and if the fed doesn't increase the supply when the demand increases then it's just like any other commodity when the demand for something goes up its value will rise now you might wonder well what would be so bad about a, a rise in the value of money that sounds good we our money would be worth more but the value of money is inversely related to the price level so for instance if Prices double over a period of time, 
through inflation, then the purchasing power of a dollar falls in half. And we've all experienced over long periods of time a gradual increase in the cost of living and a fall in the purchasing power of a dollar. It doesn't buy as much as it used to. We're not really used to dealing with deflation, uh, such as we had in the early 1930s. That's where prices fall and the purchasing power of money rises. So any increase in the value of money is essentially deflation. It's a fall in the price of goods and services. We might actually have that this year, <laughs> given the current crisis, we'll have to see. But uh, we, we don't very often have deflation in, in the modern world. And most economists believe that deflation, at least if caused by hoarding of money, would be harmful to the economy and result in high unemployment and so on. To stave off that from happening, the Fed usually increases the supply of money when there's a rise in the demand for money. So if people are, quote, hoarding money, you know, accumulating money and not uh, wanting to spend it, just sitting on it, um, the Fed will inject more money into the economy so that the value of money does not rise and the price level does not fall via deflation. So that's their so motivation for injecting money both today and also during the big recession around 2008 and nine. So why? So the money I've got in my pocket being able to buy more stuff seems like a good deal. I know it I does. Just, so why is that not good? Because I, you know, oh, man, I just got laid off. Thank God. You know, my, my money can go a little further. I've got, I've got a little bit of savings. I can buy more groceries. I can live, I can sustain myself a little longer until this virus passes. Why isn't it a good thing for Money, money to be worth. To get, well, you're also yeah. you're asking why isn't uh, a lower cost of living a good thing? Right. And lower cost of living is a good thing if it's driven by productivity improvements. So uh, if if your income is just as high as before and productivity rises and things get cheaper, that's definitely good. But if if this change is caused by the hoarding of money, the likely effect will be to uh, reduce your income. And uh, the, the reason we're getting deflation is also going to spill over in lower income. So people, when they think about inflation, in their own mind, they tend to hold their own income constant. They think, well, I make this much money. If we have inflation, I'm worse off. If we have deflation, I'm better off. And that may be true for some people with secure jobs, maybe a public school teacher or nurse or somebody like that. But for many workers, the deflation will result in unemployment. So their incomes will fall sharply. And that's not a good trade-off from them. They're, the money in their wallet may have a little more purchasing power, but if they've lost their job, they're probably going to be worse off. So it's not that deflation itself is a bad thing. Go back to my phrase, never reason from a price change. It's really deflation, a price change, caused by uh, what we would call a lack of demand a lack of money in the economy. On the other hand, a deflation caused by productivity improvements, like we sometimes see for computers and cell phones and TV sets, that kind of deflation is beneficial. It means a higher living standard. But the worry the Fed has is of a deflation caused by too little money, which causes people to lose jobs and lose income. 
And they try to avoid that sort of deflation through injecting enough money in the economy to prevent prices from falling. Think of it from the perspective of the business. When things get cheaper, of course, it's good for consumers, but the companies that are producing those goods, if they have to sell them at lower prices, how can they make a profit, right? Unless their right. wages get, unless they can cut their costs, like reduce wages. But if they reduce wages, then that consumer is no longer better off, right? They were mentally holding their income constant when they assumed that a lower cost of living would be a good thing for them. But if their income is falling as part of the thing that's causing lower prices, then it's no longer necessarily a good thing. Your, um, your blog is called The Money Illusion, which I think is just below the surface of what you're talking about. So what is that concept? How does it relate to what you just described? Um, yeah, I guess it relates in some ways. Um, the, the term in economics usually <clears throat> refers to confusion over nominal and real values. So it's convenient for most of us, in myself included, to think in nominal terms. You what know, do you, so much, what does nominal mean? What is, that's what do we mean the actual nominal? dollar amount. Like if you had a, I'll give you an example. If you had a job and your boss gave you a 3% raise, that would be the increase in your nominal income. And if during that year inflation were 2%, then we would say you only got a 1% raise in real terms. So the real amount is when you factored out inflation, right? So the nominal amount is the actual amount of uh, say a wage increase or an interest rate or something like that. And the real amount is when you take that wage increase and subtract inflation, or you take that interest rate and subtract inflation. And the real amount is supposed to measure the change in your purchasing power. So if you got a 3% raise on your job and inflation was 2%, you'd actually only have 1% more purchasing power, the three minus two. And you'd only be able to buy 1% more goods and services than in the previous year. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, yeah. Now, money so illusion is, is when you confuse the real and nominal. So my claim is that most workers would rather get a 4% raise in a year with 5% inflation than they would a 1% pay cut in a year with 1% deflation. So this, so to summarize the scenario you just described in scenario one, you get 4 a 4% in, raise in 5% inflation. Now you're so actually 1% 1 worse, worse off. off right? <laughs> if you get a, if your boss comes to you and says, I'm cutting your pay by 1%, you're likely to take it as a personal insult, even if the cost of living falls 1% that year because you tend to think in nominal terms, at least that's my claim. Well, this is very tied to this idea that of stickiness. Right, um, sticky yeah. wages. And we have a lot of stickiness in the economy, not just wages, but our, our debt contracts are typically nominal. So when there's a change in inflation, it affects the real amount we owe. Our wage contracts are nominal. So when there's a change in inflation, that affects our real wage. and as a result, this goes back to the very beginning of our talk when you, you know, what's special about money? Because all these contracts are denominated in terms of money, 
changes in the value of money become hugely important because they basically unexpectedly adjust the terms in all sorts of contracts across our whole economy. If you have a deflation that hits unexpectedly, it's suddenly much more expensive in real terms for companies to employ workers at the existing wage contract. It's suddenly much harder for people to repay nominal debts at the negotiated interest rate if there's a sudden deflation of prices. So I'm an average person and I own my home and I have a mortgage. I'm going to the, I get a pay cut of 20%. I go to the grocery store and I see eggs are 20% cheaper. So I'm thinking, oh, well, this is not so bad. I guess it's not really a loss. But then my mortgage comes due and my mortgage contract was written as a 30-year fixed contract and it did not go down 20%. Yeah, so now you're in trouble. And guess what? Deflation is often associated with major financial crises. People unable to repay debts, banks failing, etc. So, um, but you mentioned productivity gain. So, frozen well, world where nothing yeah. changes, but Apple figures out a way to make twice as many iPhones with the same amount of inputs and same amount of labor, and they can, and because Samsung's always competing with them, they drop the price in half. So there's twice as many iPhones at half the price. That's deflationary, right? But it's but not necessarily good, harmful, right? But it, and yeah. so, um, you know, later I know we'll, we'll, we'll transition to, you know, nominal GDP. But let me just talk about this in terms of income, because this is really, I think, where it's most useful. Your ability to repay debts is, is to some extent based on the increase in your nominal income. So, uh, and that's going to be correlated with inflation, but not perfectly. And um, I'll give you two examples uh, side by side of two countries that had a very similar inflation pattern, but very, very different nominal incomes. So back around the beginning of the tw uh, 21st century, Japan had roughly zero inflation and roughly zero increase in nominal incomes. China had roughly zero inflation and roughly 10% a year increase in nominal incomes. And that was because China was rapidly developing during that period. Its productivity was rising. And the rising productivity was allowing workers to earn much, much higher real incomes, maybe about 10% a year higher. So in Japan, because the workers weren't getting any more money in nominal terms, it's a little bit of a struggle to repay the debts. In China, even though they had roughly the same inflation as Japan, roughly zero in those years, their nominal incomes were rising rapidly. And that made it much easier for them to repay debts they had borrowed. So essentially, what was really underlying the rise in Chinese real incomes was productivity gains. And so in that sense, the low inflation, the zero inflation in China, was not the problem it was in Japan where there was very little productivity improvement. It was a mature economy that was kind of stagnating at the time. So um, be, because you mentioned it depends on whether the deflation is due to technology or um, a lack of money in the economy. 
And that goes back to my phrase, never reason from a price change. We shouldn't start the analysis with there's deflation. Let's see what happens. We should go back one step and ask, why is there deflation? And maybe even another step and say, maybe there's a better variable to look at than inflation to really measure what we're interested in. Uh, and uh, in case of the financial markets, it may be that the increase in people's income is more revealing in terms of the uh, ability to repay loans than is the rate of inflation. So um, this this gets us to this concept of um, nominal GDP or nominal income. So if I understand this correctly, you know, GDP is this measure of um, its gross domestic product and you start with just measuring it in, like we do in dollar terms. Okay, how much stuff was produced and exchanged in the year, um, added up, and that gives us our GDP. I don't know what it was this in 2019, 19 trillion or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the nominal. And then, so that's the measurable, observable amount of activity. Then you have to try to create the real using this somewhat cockamamie process of saying, well, how many, let's look at this group of things like eggs and houses and cars, but cars got better. So that's a little hard and man, computers got a lot better. So that's really hard. So they have to make all these adjustments. And so they right. have this inflation rate that they subtract, right? So it's like, oh, uh, you know, in, GDP went up 5%, but inflation went up 3%. So real GDP only went up two. It's kind of like the big picture mm -hmm. version of the individual right. story. You right. And that's because, you know, nominal GDP is, you can think of it as a first approximation is just all of the gross income earned in the economy by everyone, including firms and individuals. So if you add up what, all the income, that's that's basically nominal GDP. So if that's growing at 5% a year and we have 3% inflation, then in principle, we have 2% more real goods and services produced with the caveat that it's hard to you know, measure cost of living precisely. So when I first, so you advocate for thinking thinking about these issues in terms of, of nominal GDP rather than in terms of inflation. Right. Most of the things that we use inflation for in macroeconomics, I argue would be better analyzing using the growth rate of nominal GDP in place of the rate of inflation. And that includes the stresses put on a financial system by deflation. It's really falling nominal GDP that pushes puts those stresses on. Uh, it includes the so-called welfare cost of inflation. You know, if you think about why inflation is bad, we'd probably be better off using nominal GDP growth as the indicator of whether we have a problem with inflation. And that might be surprising uh, to your listeners, but uh, let me point out that the, the way a lot of people view inflation as being harmful is not really why economists think it's harmful. So if you asked a lot of people, why is inflation a bad thing? They would say, well, because it lowers my living standard. I have to pay more for stuff. But economists look at 
the economy is like a sort of a complete system where what you spend is income for someone else. There's this circular flow diagram in the introductory textbooks. All of our spending on one side comes out as income to someone else. So when there's a rise in prices, there's also a rise in income. By itself, prices, price increases don't really make the public poor. Uh, there might be a greater poverty created by certain things that cause inflation, like supply shocks, but the inflation itself doesn't really make us worse off. Our prices will go up, but our incomes will go up as well. In the long run, that's true. So then why is inflation a bad thing if it doesn't really make consumers as a whole worse off? And then economists have all these other variables they look, um, factors they look at, uh, cost of changing prices, um, tax on savings, all sorts of things that are cited as costs of inflation. But when you look at all those other factors that economists focus on, we'd probably be better off actually looking at the nominal GDP growth rate as our indicator of the so-called cost of inflation on the economy. So, so um, one of the costs that's probably the hardest to understand is, um, from my understanding of it, is something that uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote about in the economic consequences of the peace, that it's sort of, uh, and that's certainly Hayek and others talk about as well, which is, so we use money prices, the prices out there in the world to, to help guide our activities. Like if, uh, if, we're, if our company's doing great, um, we hire more people. If our company's not doing great, we don't. And that's, we may, you know, that tells us something about what people want out there in the world and whether or not what we're offering is what people want. But in this inflation environment, if it's just printing more money and that's the cause of it, it creates some chaos, some no right. increased noise to signal ratio. And that's, in my understanding, these today, that's maybe the most important cost. Is that the way you think of it too? That it's this, I think Leland Yeager says, thinks of money like a fluttering veil over the economy. And the, so, so it's, it's, um, it's fluttering more. So it's harder to see the truth. Like is, is my, in, is a, is my bottom line telling me that whether or not I should hire or whether or not I should invest, or is that just because I'm running a construction company and there's a lot of inflation and there's a lot of people scrambling to buy houses and that's all going to come crashing down because it's 2006. Um, is that right? Is that that's, that's, that's a part of it. Um, and, uh, so you might wonder why, if that's true, if inflation is a problem for that reason, why do I think nominal GDP growth is a better metric for that kind of distortion? So I guess what I would say is that um, there's you can think of the economy as having three major sectors, the output of goods and services, the labor market, and the financial system. Those are all important sectors. And in my view, um, the contracts that create stickiness or slowness in adjustment are most prevalent in labor markets and financial markets. That is, you have labor contracts and financial contracts like bonds 
mortgages and so on that are often relatively long-term. Now, it's also true that there's stickiness of prices. Prices don't change every day. They're often set for long periods. But I think the worst problem is in the labor market and in the financial market. And if that's true, then then there's sort of like a horse race between two choices. One choice would be let's stabilize the cost of living in the hope that we have less confusion, less distortions, and so on. The other choice is let's stabilize nominal GDP or nominal growth at a certain constant rate in the hope that that reduces all these confusions, all this confusion and distortion and so on. And in my view, stabilizing nominal GDP or its growth rate will do a much better job than stabilizing inflation in terms of the labor market and the financial system. For goods, for the goods market, it's probably uh, maybe inflation stabilization might be a little better or maybe it wouldn't make much difference. But the two big problem markets are um, the labor market and the financial system. Go back to the Great Recession, for instance, and think about the problems that occurred. Did you find when you went to stores you couldn't find things? No, typically shoppers had no trouble going to stores. The shelves were full. Uh, Maybe not this week, but you know, back (laughs) during the Great Recession, for instance. So typically our product markets aren't really that strongly in disequilibrium. Like there might be a reduction in how much is being sold, but you can usually buy pretty much as much as you want. The labor market gets way out of equilibrium. Lots of people that want to work just cannot find jobs. And the financial system often gets way out of equilibrium. There's people defaulting on debts because they don't have enough income to repay the debts. Banks fail, et cetera. And if you if you think that the labor market and financial market instability is the biggest problem that we have with the monetary system, as I do, then you would want to look focus on a variable that is most closely linked with stability in those markets. And that variable is nominal GDP growth, not inflation. That goes back to my Japan-China example. The where I said the the ability to repay those loans was much higher in China because their income growth was higher. It was nominal GDP that was really telling you the relevant variable in terms of ability to service debt, and the inflation numbers were not very useful. And that's true of labor markets too. So Wait, one more point. Nominal income is the resources that businesses have to pay wages. Inflation is not the resources businesses have to pay wages. It's nominal GDP. It's the revenue that's spent on all goods and services in the economy. When that falls, they lay off workers. There's not enough revenue to support full employment. But you could have deflation because of productivity improvements, and the industry might be booming because the productivity improvements allow you to continue producing and selling at a lower cost. So if we're trying to stabilize the price level, we're kind of missing the boat. Prices can move around for many reasons, but nominal GDP declines are almost a surefire indicator of a problem in the labor market and a problem in the financial system. 
So when I first encountered this concept of nominal income as the better way to think about the um, big macroeconomic stability, like what what's happening that's a function of the money supply or what's happening as a function of policy. It was couched in terms of something that was a pretty old idea. And I didn't real, realize that uh, how old it was until, until I sort of looked into this more that it, it kind of goes back to this idea of this equation of exchange, right? This sense that there's like a simple, t- tell me about the equation of exchange. I think, is it David Hume that first really identified, identified this, this very abstract concept, but Certainly the concept is in his writings on economics. Um, And he had a lot of very extremely astute things to say about um, macroeconomics that can easily be framed in terms of the equation of exchange. So what Um, is the equation of exchange? Because I think it's, it's, it's um, it's underneath this conversation in a way. Yeah. It's actually a misunderstood equation. Um, It's sort of like, um, it doesn't really by itself tell us anything uh, in terms of causality, but it it's a way of organizing information that makes it easier to think about what we're talking about. So the equation is usually defined as something like M times V equals P times Y. That is the stock of money in the economy times the speed at which it's being spent gives you uh, essentially the total dollar amount of spending in the economy. Um, However, these variables can be defined in many different ways. So a lot of economists will define total spending just in terms of final goods and services. That's nominal GDP. They won't include things bought at a garage sale that are used and aren't current output. But the basic idea, is that if you had, say, a billion dollars in the economy and each dollar was spent once a week, you know, turned over in transactions once a week, since there's 52 weeks in a year, you'd end up with $52 billion worth of transactions at the end of the year. That's kind of the intuition behind it. Um, So that kind of frame, in that kind of framing, on the right side of the equation, we have the total dollar amount of spending, nominal GDP, let's say. And on the left side, we have the quantity of money in circulation and the speed at which it's being spent. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what this equation means. Is it a theory? Is it an identity? That is a truism. I think it's most useful to view it as an identity, an accounting identity, because we cannot really measure velocity directly. So what we do when we use the equation is we measure nominal GDP and we measure whatever money supply we're interested in. And then the last variable, V, becomes um, sort of a multiplier factor. We we plug in the number that makes the equation true. So for instance, uh, nominal GDP is about 20 trillion now. And uh, if the monetary base is 4 trillion, then the velocity would be 5. Five times four trillion is twenty trillion, and if you organize the data that way, then you would naturally think in terms of there being two ways in which nominal GDP could rise. One would be you'd add more money to the economy; M would go up. 
The other is the money already there would be spent faster. That is, velocity would go up or some combination of the two. So it's kind of a way of organizing information, but contrary to what a lot of people assume, it isn't really a monetarist equation. It's not something that shows that the uh, quantity theory of money is true. Um, just what, as the analogy, what, well, what is the quantity theory of money? That's the theory that if you you know increase the money supply by a certain percent, prices will go up by the same percent. Gotcha. So it's easy to sort of illustrate that theory with the equation to show why we believe it's true. But the equation itself doesn't prove that. Let me give you an analogy so your listeners know what I mean by an identity. Keynesian economists often use a different identity, something like consumption plus investment plus government equals GDP, or sometimes they add in a net export sector too. So you have G plus I plus C uh, plus net exports is, G is GDP. That's just an identity, an accounting relationship, organizing the different kinds of production in the economy. But many people falsely assume it sort of like shows that more government spending will make GDP go up because G, government spending is one of the, or government output technically, is one of the parts of that accounting identity. But of course, it doesn't really prove anything. Maybe if government output goes up, private spending goes down. So we don't really know anything about causality by looking at these equations. And the MV equals PY equation, the equation of exchange, it kind of at first glance looks like if we increase the money supply, nominal GDP will go up. And that's often the case. But it doesn't really prove that because you could increase the money supply and velocity could go down. And that actually has occurred in some recent uh, periods in history such as the financial crisis. So um, it's a way of thinking about the relationship. Um, I think that it is useful in a certain way, but we shouldn't oversell what it tells us. Well, the, the other side of the, so you talked about money and velocity. The other side of it, as I understood it, is summed up as GDP, but it's also broken out into the price level and the Real GDP um, and, and and real GDP, right? Right. So underneath the surface of that, so I so I think if it, what I understand to be the benefit, the reason why I brought up Hume and, and this exchange, and because Hayek writes about this too, he calls it like the spending flow. It also sounds vaguely like Keynes because it's talking about aggregate spending, right? That um, because we can't really affect like the same inflation has faces the same problem as velocity can't really measure velocity. Our measurement of inflation is kind of nonsense. So if we look at the total picture, nominal income, uh, that's the that's really the thing that we're really able to observe and that we're really concerned about. Inflation um, may or may not be something we want to deal with or change right. or, or use or have the Fed try to adjust. I mean, I think of... Um, this is one of the, so to come back to this present now. So we have this situation where all of a sudden we're all being sent home. Global supply chains are being disrupted. It's hard. It's becoming more expensive in one sense to do business, to get things made. Um, 
you would think this should actually be causing prices to go up. Right. But, yeah. Good but, point. But that's only, that's only right. Because it's like, well, man, nobody's working. Well, that means there's less supply of stuff and we all still need the thing, you know, but obviously there's all, all these things are happening at the same time, which is just head scrambling because of the sheer scope of what's happening today. Right. So but in one sense, we would think prices should start to go up, not down. Right. And, and, and what we're implicitly doing when we think that, um, well, we're probably doing two things. We're remembering that earlier supply shocks like the oil embargo did cause inflation to go up and, um, you know, crop failures or things that are, you know, reduce our productivity. So we're thinking it's kind of natural for an adverse supply shock, something that reduces our productive capacity to make prices go up. And the other thing we're doing is we're looking at equation and we're sort of like mentally holding MV fixed. We're saying, well, let's, let's say nothing's going on with the money supply and velocity. Then if real GDP goes down, prices should go up to balance that out, keep the right side of the equation stable. And it's true that if nominal GDP was unchanged, a fall in output should result in higher prices. I would even argue that's desirable. The fact that in this particular crisis, unlike other supply shocks, we're probably going to see inflation fall is itself kind of interesting and worth thinking about, although we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves to talk about that now. But that's, that's one of the things that concerns me about the current situation. It, Obviously, in an accounting sense, if both prices and real output are going down at the same time, which I expect over the next few months, then the left side of the equation, money times velocity, is also declining. And we have to ask, is that desirable for MV or, in other words, nominal GDP to be going down during this crisis? Or should we do something on the monetary side to prevent that from happening? So Which is one of the interesting question. And so one of the things that you brought up was these contracts, especially our debts, our mortgages. Uh, if we have this, this sort of deflationary spiral on top of the fact that there's less stuff for us to buy and less, um, less, less people working, uh, unless we can re renegotiate all of our, our debts, uh, it's going to hurt even worse. It's going to take up, make a bad situation worse. Is that, that's exactly think right. About it? I know it's um, yeah, I so, think um, calls it like a secondary deflation or a sort of uh it's like a second order effect that ends up exactly. kicking us while we're down. Exactly. And here's the problem. Many people don't understand what's going on when there's a secondary effect because they think it's just the primary effect getting worse. Um, I think I'd find that easier to explain by referring back to the previous recession first, because there it's a little bit clearer. In the previous recession, um, the initial shock was the whole housing subprime mortgage situation, the, the crash, the banking problems. And then there was a secondary shock of falling nominal GDP, which I would argue was basically unrelated to housing. 
and it made the recession much worse than it needed to be. But what was widely believed was what happened was that we just had this housing banking crisis and it led to a very severe recession. If you use a medical analogy, most people believe we started with a mild cold and it turned into a bad cold. I argued that we started with a cold and it turned into pneumonia, went from a viral infection to a bacterial infection. And that needed completely different medicine than would a viral infection. So what we had back in the Great Recession was a decline in the housing market that by itself was not severe enough to cause a big recession. Uh, in fact, for two years, the housing market declined in almost in half with very little impact on the unemployment rate because housing is only in the 3 to 6% of GDP range. So workers lost jobs building houses, but they went over and worked in other areas like commercial construction and uh, manufacturing services, et cetera. Then, starting in the middle of 2008, MV, total dollar spending, started to fall. And this led to a decline in many industries in the economy, not just housing. And it made the recession dramatically worse than it had been in the early part of the downturn. Unemployment then rose very, very rapidly, and uh, we had many more bankruptcies, even unrelated to some prime mortgages. In fact, in the end, we actually lost far more, we had far more bank failures due to default on business loans than we did to subprime mortgages. Most of the bank failures in America were caused by business loans defaulting and I would argue because of the fall in nominal GDP, which made it much harder for businesses to repay loans. If, so if the, the housing was the trigger, the primary shock, but the secondary shock actually turned into something much, much bigger. So this, one of the ways I think about this is, um, uh, is a, I, I kind of hate this analogy because of some of the, some of the, ways it gets misused high, like the, the idea that there's a like a hydraulic system uh, in 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 an economy but uh -huh. it's an interesting analogy in this case which is you have if you have two if you have a set of pistons that are all connected in like a closed loop filled with air i i used to i love legos that you can do you can do this with the little lego technic pistons uh -huh. um the total height of all the piston heads will always be the same because if you push down on one, another one will pop up because the air will move into the other one. So the total height, if you measure all the heights of the little piston heads, they should technically always be at the same height. And that's the way I think of your idea of this nominal GDP, that this income in the economy is the same. And so, all right, housing goes down, but people are able to move into other industries um other sectors expand um if if um if apple gets good at making more iphones and the price of iphones goes down that means that the buyers of iphones have money to spend in other places and so you have this system of relative prices at work which is what makes markets which is why markets are good markets mm -hmm. let you decide Markets are like this giant decision engine through prices of, do we need more respirators now? Well, yes, we do, because the prices are going up. That's how we know we need more. Um, but what exactly. you're describing is um, 
you're describing is the air is getting let out of the hydraulics. And so now, and so now I don't know. Okay. So now the air is coming out of the one for the housing, but no, none of the other ones are seeing the prices go up. So nobody's hiring these housing people anymore. They were, and now they're not because now they're seeing their incomes also either be flat or go down. And we don't know. So there's no one getting that signal that says pick up the slack or, Hey, there's opportunities here. There's some people here you can hire. There's some uh, consumers that can, you can, you can pitch your, your wares to it's, it's creates this, um, this like downward pressure that each individual piston doesn't know how to interpret when they look out into the world and say, what's happening. Is that, does that yeah, make that's sense? Right. Yeah, let me, uh, that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's a good analogy. Um, another way of looking at this, which is really along the same lines, but a different framing is to kind of think about it in terms of like how a free market economy is supposed to work. Like, let's say you were a believer in free market economics and you wanted to sell the idea to the public. What kind of nominal GDP path would you want to have? In all probability, it would be easier to sell your ideas if nominal GDP or the growth rate was was stable. Like, for instance, you would say, don't bail out General Motors, right? Let them go bankrupt. Well, that's a hard argument to make if there's a lot of unemployment. But if you're keeping nominal GDP growth stable, then the money that was spent on General Motors cars would be spent on some other product, right? You're keeping total spending stable. So you could think of workers being reallocated out of declining industries into growing industries. But if nominal GDP falls, it's harder to make that argument because there may not be employment opportunities in other growing industries to offset the decline there. So it's hard to argue against bailouts. It's hard to argue against tariffs because it seems like imports are costing jobs. But again, if you keep nominal GDP stable, then any losses in one sector due to imports would be offset by gains somewhere else. It's hard to argue against government make work projects to put people to work if nominal GDP is falling because what will the unemployed do otherwise? But if you keep nominal GDP growing at a stable rate, then there'll be enough jobs out there uh, for workers losing jobs in one sector to find jobs in some other sector. So you don't need like fiscal stimulus to create jobs because your monetary policy is already promoting stable growth in total spending in the economy. So many of the uh, arguments made that go against free market economics for bailouts of industries, for protectionism, for government make work projects, et cetera, are basically arguments that assume that the market economy doesn't work in terms of providing employment opportunities. And essentially the whole classical notion of opportunity cost, like if you spend money on something, there's an opportunity cost that we can't do something else with that money. It's actually hard to make that argument in a depressed economy because people will say, well, yeah, we're spending all this money on a government project, but if the government wasn't doing it, the resources would just be idle. They wouldn't be used somewhere else. So if you keep nominal GDP growing at a stable rate, then it sort of makes classical economics true. 
ideas like Say's Law, supply creates its own demand, become true in an economy where nominal GDP uh, growth is kept stable. And opportunity cost becomes a valid concept in that kind of economy. So in my view, if you, if you kind of think of it in that framing, like what kind of monetary policy would make it most easy to argue for classical economic principles like free markets and creative destruction and opportunity cost, it's stable nominal GDP growth. I, um, I am a huge believer that the says law of markets, um, is arguably the single most important concept in economics outs in outside of uh what we're talking about the idea mm -hmm. that um the way i the way i like to think of it is i know you said supply creates its own demand um shame on you scott that's a very keynesian summary of say's law um but uh the way I, the way i think of it is i in order to buy things i must make an income that my my actual income is the product of my production that i have to I, I have to go i have to i have to do something for somebody i have to create something i have to provide a service and then i get this receipt for doing so and that is what allows me to demand other things and this is all we're all at some level i feel like um even the all the ways that economics gets framed masks the sense in which an economy is people trying to serve each other and exchanging their 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 services it, this, that, that this um these flows and this circular flows and these these macro um frameworks often just mask that and it turns into a focus on spending instead of a focus on service and creation and right i mean how do you think you know do you think that's a fair criticism um at the at the most basic level of thinking for the the, the i mean the way I, I the way i something i personally harp on every christmas is all the obsession about whether or not christmas is a christmas spending is good this, this whole idea that consumption grows the economy when it by definition mm -hmm. is the using up of what the economy yeah. has produced that these all feel connected to me and it's like giant ball of fallacies that gets in the way of understanding what makes prosperity happen and i think in modern complex economic systems it becomes harder to see this connection it's probably easier for people in i don't know 200 years ago in a small american town to see how it all fits together because they're producing things for each other and trading and they, they see the connection between production and, and income. Um, and a little bit maybe in the modern economy with some of these things like Uber drivers where you, you really see the connection between, you know, production and income. But um, in the modern complex economy, all sorts of fallacies creep in that wouldn't be a problem in those simple economies like, uh, you know, America in 1820 in a little village. And three that are very uh, pernicious are that trade, international trade, immigration, and automation are all bad for employment. So there's this perception that imports cost jobs, automation costs jobs, 
immigrants steal jobs from domestic uh, citizens. And, you know, these, these are hard to dispense with, but it becomes easier to push back against these ideas if we maintain stable growth in nominal GDP. We make the economy more like that little village in 1820 where it's obvious that if you do something to make your little blacksmith shop more productive, it's good for the economy, right? But in a complex economy where people are hired by big firms and you know, you know work for people they don't even see and so on, and they're one cog in this big machine, often it's harder to see what's truly going on, this interrelationship you talk about between production, what we can produce, and what we're able to consume. And that's where a lot of economic fallacies crop in, which lead to bad government policies. So to come back to our, to our present situation where the coronavirus and the government's response to it, which may be, may be necessary, may be overblown, it's hard to know, and it will be probably impossible after the fact to make a convincing argument in either direction. Because if, we, mm -hmm. if things turn out better than predicted, every action that was taken will be defended as being uh, contributing to the, to the good outcome. And if, uh, if things are worse than expected, uh, everyone will say, we should have done more. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, 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 it's just, it's like the, 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 it's the classic problem with complex systems like right. a whole society. We just never really know. It's, it's complicated. Um, but one of the things that I'm struggling with in, in trying to understand how to apply your insights, this focus on income as our macroeconomic um, uh, sort of uh, thermostat, is how, how does the Fed, so the Fed goes, the Fed is measuring nominal GDP or, or, or some government agencies measuring it imperfectly somehow they're getting prices in with some amount of delay to generate this these reports about what nominal gdp is or what it what it was last month or or at some with some delay and now the fed has this a uh, this money supply that it's growing and shrinking by buying and selling assets and then it's also impacting it by whether or not it pays interest, which keeps money parked at the Fed versus not parked at the Fed. But the relationship between the activities of what the Fed does, how much should it buy now versus the actual outcome of nominal GDP, which is this big estimate of the activities in the economy as a whole, how do they how are they supposed to do that? How are they supposed to know how much money to put into the economy to try to counteract um, or supply the, the you know the, the the demand for for money? The, the people are you know and and I I've got sort of a second question which I'll ask even though it's not quite related but I'll ask it anyway. Um, is you know. I understand people going to the bank and taking cash and putting it in, and taking it out of the bank and putting it in their mattress, but how much of that is happening versus um, 
you know, keeping money in a savings account or, you know, is it, are there other kinds of demand for money besides literally putting cash, pulling cash out of the bank that is happening that we can understand that there's this increased demand for money? Like, how do we know that there's such a big increased demand for money? And, and what, how does the Fed know that it's adequately countering it? I guess that's my summary of my two questions in one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I really that, hit you with a, I hit you with a lot there. Maybe let's start off with how we, how do we know that, like, how is this happening? How is this demand for money actually being manifest right now? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the, the first question you asked me, I think itself is a two-parter in terms of how does the Fed know what to do? think so um well there's a couple problems here i'll have to give a little bit of a long answer but you can interrupt me at any time one is what should the fed be doing that is what is its target like should am i correct that they should target nominal gdp growth at four percent a year let's say and then the second part of the question is well if that is the proper goal or if 2% inflation is the proper goal, how would they know how much money is appropriate to hit that goal? Is that right? Is that sort of the two parts to your question? I, yeah, what I is think the proper goal and how do they know what's the appropriate policy to reach that goal? Yeah, I think um, I was sort of assuming, like take as an assumption that some stable growth of nominal income uh, I'm going to leave aside for maybe another time why it should grow rather than just be stable. Mm-hmm. But or, but maybe maybe like you're you're framing it in these two ways. So yeah. So a why choose a growth target for nominal GDP, and then b how do they hit it? How do they, how do they know what to do to hit it? Okay. So um, my argument for nominal GDP targeting is. Um, as I indicated earlier, I believe that would best stabilize the labor markets and the financial system, which is the two big problems we tend to have during a major crisis. That is, we have high unemployment and we have a lot of uh, debt defaults and bank failures and so on. So one argument I make is that with stable nominal GDP growth, we'd have a more stable economy, not these waves of exuberance and crash uh, that we see in the financial system and unemployment would not shoot up to 10% as it did in 2009. So um, that's the, the the logic of nominal GDP targeting. Um, I believe in the great recession period, for instance, that about 90% of the recession was the fall in nominal GDP and the other 10% was unemployment caused by workers leaving housing construction and going to other sectors. Now, the current crisis we're facing is a very unusual one. It's a shock unlike anything I've ever seen. It's not one that's easily fixed by getting people to spend more money because the real problem is people are basically uh, reluctant to go out and you know, go on cruises and flights and hotels and restaurants and all this. So we may see a fairly severe drop in output, uh, which you can view as, in one sense, as like a fall in productivity, or you could view it as just, uh, you know, a reluctance to spend money and a need to reallocate our um, 
economy towards other sectors. So, well, maybe 90% of the Great Recession was caused by the fall in nominal GDP. This time around, even if we stabilize nominal GDP growth, I, I want to warn your listeners that I think that would only maybe solve 30% of the problem or something. That is, a lot of what we're going to face this year is sort of unavoidable pain due to the way we're reacting to the uh, crisis by shutting down a lot of activities for reasons of social distancing and so on. And to, that to can't put that be another fixed. way. Um, to put that another way, like uh, when we're not, I mean, this in a way is sort of tying into the Say's Law idea. If we're not making stuff, we are getting poorer. If right. We're, we're getting poorer. Yeah, we're exactly. sitting at home eating and consuming our homes and uh, using up stuff, but we're not making stuff. The society is getting poorer. There's no, right. no we could triple the amount of money we all have sitting on laying in our, <laughs> sitting around and it doesn't matter. We're, we don't have as much stuff. We're, we're, right. we're worse off. But we don't want to amplify the problem unnecessarily by uh, having the amount of money spending fall or at least fall excessively. Now, even if you don't accept my view of nominal GDP targeting, almost everybody should agree, I would think, that we, we don't want inflation to be falling in this crisis. Uh, you mentioned earlier that normally during a supply shock, inflation will increase. And that's been the experience in the U.S. during like the oil embargo and so on. But this time around, even though we have an adverse supply shock, it looks like inflation is going to be falling uh, this year that's going to put even more pressure on borrowers. So we have a situation where it would already be difficult for people to service debts, and there would already be a rise in defaults and bankruptcies. But if we let inflation and even nominal GDP fall, that's going to make it worse. So my preference would be a monetary policy that um, tried to promote nominal GDP growth at least for next year, say 2021. I mean, I don't think there's anything we can do about the next month or two. There's everything will go in shutdown <laughs> in many industries. So, but what I'm fearful of is that a lot of indicators in the financial markets are suggesting that investors think things will be very depressed for many years to come, even after, uh, say, a vaccine were developed. And that's where a monetary policy can help. If you have a monetary policy, that promotes nominal GDP growth, then once the acute medical crisis is over and people are at least to some extent able to get out of their houses and do things again, it will promote a faster recovery if we have adequate nominal spending in the economy to create a reemployment of workers. And just as we failed to reemploy workers quickly enough in the Great Recession, even once we'd solved the banking crisis, due to a lack of nominal spending, we could fail to get an adequate recovery from this acute crisis um, right now if we do not have a monetary policy able to promote nominal spending uh, growth at a decent rate, at least over the medium term. We can kind of set aside on a shelf what can be done in the, the short term, which is very debatable. Um, so my goal would be a monetary policy that promotes nominal GDP growth, at least over the medium term, to reduce the amount of debt stress on borrowers, uh, the, reduce the amount of unemployment over the medium term, 
once the most acute phase of the medical crisis is over. And uh, so that calls for a, uh, in my view, a different monetary policy. And then the, the second part of your question is, how do we know how to do that? But first of all, do you, do you see the framing I'm making that this crisis yeah. is a little more, quote, real and less monetary than some other crises we've had? In the past, it was often just a question of you'd inject money in the economy and people would go out and spend more. I'm less optimistic this time that that would work in the very short run because of all this social distancing. But I do feel we are in danger of it dragging for a long period and still think things can be done on the monetary side to create more bullish exp expectations for next year. And that would help support some of the financial markets that are crashing because they're crashing partly because they think the economy will be bad in 2021, 2022, and so on, not just this year. If it was just this year, the markets would not be sending the signals they are, the long-term bond yields, the stocks, and all the other indicators are for quite a long period of recession right now. And this sort of gets, so um, before we get to this role of expectations and we can kind of end our conversation there, I want to just try to understand how the Fed being the monetary authority would know that they're putting in enough money or too much, or is it a little bit of, there's just this sort of delayed reaction. And so they put in a bunch of money and then they measure nominal GDP. And then they say, Oh, we overshot. We pull back a little this time. And there's just, a you, you, you got to live with, with some lag because they, there is no, there's no like instant real time indicator. It's not like they're, it's almost like, uh, is it like they're, sort of controlling a remote control car that's got a that, that's got a sort of delay on the controls and so you're overshooting and undershooting but you're just trying to stay on target how, how do they know yeah. what to buy and how much to buy like this that connection there is the thing that most confuses me about um, right yeah so it's, i think it applies equally to inflation right it's probably it's it's not really a different problem than how do they know how much to put in to try to keep inflation at two percent but how do you? Yeah, it's, it's a similar problem. The metaphor might be a steering a large uh, tanker or ocean liner, a very large ship, because there the movement of the boat responds rather slowly to the movement of the wheel, the steering wheel, compared to if you turn the steering wheel on a Ferrari or something, and the car responds very quickly. So um, that that's that's creates a difficulty. But before answering that question it might be useful to briefly point out that the Federal Reserve can increase prices in nominal GDP. Although you might not question that, there's a lot of articles out there talking about the Fed being out of ammunition or they've already cut interest rates to zero. There's nothing more they can do. So let's be clear that central banks have an almost infinite ability to create inflation, at least in a technical sense. Now, there may be political constraints on a central bank, especially in Europe where it's very complicated, but in a technical sense, a central bank can create almost an unlimited amount of money and therefore uh, spending and inflation or whatever nominal variable they want to increase if they're determined to do so. They never really run out of ammunition 
unless they run out of uh, paper and ink to print new money with, which obviously won't happen. So why do so many people believe that the Fed is out of ammunition if it clearly is not out of ammunition? One reason is they think monetary policy is interest rates. So they think it's cutting interest rates. And then when interest rates are cut to zero, they think the central bank's out of ammunition. But actually, monetary policy is about the supply and demand for money. So as long as the central bank can do things to increase the supply of money or reduce the demand for money, they can do expansionary monetary policies. They can only reduce the demand for money so much, but there's really no limit in principle to how much the supply of money could be increased. So my preferred policy would be for the Fed to commit to do uh, whatever it takes, inject as much money into the economy as necessary, buying assets with this newly created money, in order to create market expectations of adequate growth in nominal GDP or inflation if if they choose a 2% inflation target. So, so the, the exact target isn't as important right now as um, just having a whatever-it-takes approach, committing to buy as many assets as necessarily, necessary with newly created money so that the market begins to expect 2% inflation or 4% nominal GDP growth. Now, we have market indicators of inflation expectations, and they're well under 2%. So it's very likely inflation will be below 2% over the next few years. That means monetary policy is not sufficiently expansionary. They need to inject more money. But by itself, that's um, not really the most important step they could take now. The most important step is to do what's called level targeting, which means you set a trend line for either prices or nominal GDP, and you say, if we miss, will promise to come back to that trend line in the future. So let's say that their target path was for prices to grow at 2% a year. And two years out, it'd be 4% higher, three years out, 6%, a little more with compounding. But basically, that would be the idea. That would be the trend line they're looking for. If during a given year, prices only rise 1%, now you're 1% below that trend line of 2% growth. So you commit to catch up to the trend line with faster than 2% growth until you're back on that trend line. That's called level targeting. And that's the single most powerful thing the Fed could do right now to restore confidence in the economy, switch to level targeting. Even better than level targeting inflation would be level targeting nominal GDP growth at say 4% a year. And so you have a trend line going out at 4% a year for nominal GDP growth. And if you fall below that in the short term, you commit to come back up to that trend line over the following few years. So how... Um, and how do they know whether they've done enough? Yeah, exactly. Use market indicators. So look at the markets, see what they're forecasting. If markets are forecasting that you're going to fall short of your goals, do more. If the markets are forecasting excessive growth in nominal GDP or inflation, do less. 
So the market is probably the single best guide the Fed has. The analogy I use here, if we go back to steering and so on, is the central banks like the Fed have been for too long focusing too much on past economic data. So they'll look at what inflation has been or nominal GDP has been in the past, and they'll make adjustments on that basis. But that would be like steering your car by looking at the rear view mirror to see if you're drifting off the road. A much better way to steer your car is look ahead down the road and steer towards the objective, the, you know, the point further down the highway. So the markets, the financial markets are going to give you an indication of where the markets think you're going in terms of inflation or nominal GDP growth. And if we don't have good indicators, create new ones. I've been recommending creating a nominal GDP futures market, for instance, which would provide valuable information to the Federal Reserve. So um, why, do you why do you believe, so the, the road analogy is great, mm -hmm. but the road analogy has the benefit of there being an actual physical road that lies ahead right. that if you look forward, you see. But right. what you're talking about is predictions about an uncertain future by people placing bets. And I realize that I'll, I'll sort of say people who are actually putting money on bets for the future are worth more than people who just go on cable news and blab about what they think the future is going to be mm -hmm. because at least they've got skin in the game. But even so, um, why do you have any confidence that that's useful information, these bets about the future? Like why is well, that? Um, I mean, is it just like it, the, I, is it I, just the least worst thing for the Fed to use? Um, why, yeah, why have confidence in worst. it? Well, uh, I, first of all, I don't have confidence in the sense that I think the market is always right. I mean, the market is often wrong. I think it's the least bad forecasting tool we have. It's not that. Um, look, if there's a point spread on the Super Bowl and, and, and one team is expected to win by four points, if you ask me what do I think will happen in the Super Bowl, I don't actually think that team will win by exactly four points, but that would probably be my least bad guess. Like, I can't think of any other bet, guess that would be more likely to be true. Um, and I think that's kind of how markets work. but because of that objection, I've suggested that there's another way to bring the market into the picture that allows the central bank to disregard the market forecast or override it if it's worried that for some reason the market have, is off course. And uh, this one's a little bit uh, tough to explain. It requires your readers are familiar with uh, concepts like futures markets. But one way to do this would, and I call this the guardrail approach to get back to the driving. Um, one way to do this would be to say that the central bank commits to go long or short on nominal GDP futures contracts at a price a little bit above or below the target level. So if the target is 4% growth in nominal GDP, they commit to go short on a contract at 5% growth and long on a 3% contract. In other words, they, they say we're willing to bet market participants 
that nominal GDP growth will be between three and 5%. And if you think it's gonna be outside that range, you can take a, a bet with us and we'll take the other side of that bet. So th so now, if nobody bets with the central bank, that's fine. That means the market is confident that growth will be within that range. But if most people in the market think we're clearly going to be above 5% or clearly below 3%, and you know, there's times where markets clearly feel the Fed is off course, then all the bets will pile up on one side. And then the central bank has a decision. They can either take that bet with the market if they're sure they're doing the right thing and the market is wrong, if they think they know better than the market, or they might look at that and say, hmm, maybe we're off course because uh, everybody's betting it's going to be outside this range and they're all betting in one direction. Maybe we should nudge policy so that bets are more balanced so that roughly half the people think we're going to overshoot and roughly half the people think we're going to undershoot. Um, even though I use the term guardrails, another metaphor that maybe is more useful is the beeping noise a truck makes when it's backing up and approaching an object, right? Yeah. So if there's all these bets in the market against the central bank, that's kind of like a warning that they're probably off course. Now, the driver of the truck can say, well, I think that beeping mechanism is wrong. I don't see anything in my rear view mirror. I'm going to keep backing up. They can override that. But if they crash into something, the passenger next to them might ask, why did you ignore that beeping sound? And the Fed could ignore the markets. But if they go way off course and there's a recession or high inflation in the other direction, Congress might say, why did you ignore all those market signals that you were way off course? What made you confident that you knew more than the market about where nominal GDP was growing? So in that kind of regime, there's still theoretically 100% discretion for the central bank to ignore markets if the central bank is confident that the markets are wrong. But as a practical matter, let's face it, if the markets were piling up overwhelmingly on one side, the central banks would be terrified about losing a lot of bets and being embarrassed. So as a practical matter, they would conduct policy so that um, they're probably in that range where there's bets occurring in both directions. And that's because, as you know, in reality, central banks do not know better than the market where the economy is likely to go in the future. But again, my proposal would allow formally central banks to ignore markets if they think markets are irrational or subject to manipulation or bouts of hysteria or anything of that sort. So it does address that criticism. And um, but I think it does so in a way that when you look at it realistically, um, central banks, in fact, do understand that if the markets were all lined up on one side, they would have a problem. So um, the the last question I have for you, Scott, is why should the Fed um, buy assets, which is which sounds little like yeah. communism <laughs> right good why, question it, but why well, shouldn't the if the fed wants to increase the money supply um why not just yeah, have the I treasury don't. print tons of dumb money drive around the country and put it in people's front door 
And there you go. There's some more money. It's not debt. I didn't buy your house and now the Fed owns my house or, or, or buy yeah, but that's, Apple that's stock exactly and now the, the Fed owns owns Apple stock. Like why why buy assets instead of just create money and dis, and disperse it? Right. So that's why monetary stimulus versus fiscal stimulus. What I would argue is um, because what you're talking about in the what you mentioned, giving away the newly created money is really combined monetary fiscal stimulus. Fiscal stimulus is costly because it imposes a burden on future taxpayers. Now, it may not look that way because in your example, you're giving the money away. It wasn't necessarily any sort of debt for the uh, government, but in practice, it probably is a debt. And here's why. When the crisis is over, the demand for money will be much lower. So all that money you injected has to be pulled out of circulation. If you've given it away, you have to borrow a lot of money to buy it back from the public. Hmm. On the other hand, if the central bank injects money to the economy by buying assets, and I prefer they buy government bonds, by the way, then um, when they have to remove the money from circulation, they can sell off the government bonds they bought, and there's no net cost to future taxpayers from monetary stimulus. Fiscal stimulus imposes a burden on future taxpayers, which hurts the economy in the long run. So fiscal stimulus is much more costly than monetary stimulus. It may seem like there's a free lunch, let's give everybody $1,000 or whatever. But if that seems to be too good to be true, it's because there is. There's, there's always a opportunity cost involved in fiscal stimulus. So, and it, it, it may seem in the short run, I, I do understand the argument for it. Like with interest rates at zero, there's real, really no burden on the debt. And, you know, it looks like they could inject the money for a considerable period of time and it wouldn't be a burden on taxpayers. But unless interest rates stay at zero forever, and that's a special case, but unless interest rates stay at zero forever, it really is a future tax uh, burden. Well, uh, I want to make sure I understand the way because you're, you're talking about, I guess, what I, I guess, like helicopter money, just putting right. putting money, just the Fed going into every bank account and adding a zero. Um, forget right. having to print a bunch of money since nobody's paying with cash. Everybody's got a credit card or a mm -hmm. debit card. Um, I, I want to make this is this is a little complex. This is a little confusing to me. I, I so I want to make sure I understand the difference. If the if if Uncle Sam, if the Trump administration cuts everybody checks out of the treasury and it comes out of the federal budget and they have to go out and borrow money, even if they borrow it at zero, they've borrowed it from someone that's expecting the money back. So that's a debt. There's a, there's a creditor that has, to, that has to be repaid. Even if, they get, even if all they're going to be repaid is the exact amount they lent at zero, zero interest, or even negative interest. So they're just happy that they're going to get something back in the future instead of nothing. Um, so that's a debt, and I understand that. And of course, you know, you're going to have to pay it back. So if you cut everybody $2,000 checks and they spend it on food and clothing and car washes and whatever, well, that money, that, that those resources are gone, and their future incomes are going to need to be garnished in the form of taxes to pay back the creditor that lent the money. 
but how is the Fed creating new money? I think, I mean, you explained it, but it does sound, it doesn't sound the, it doesn't sound the same thing as fiscal stimulus with debt finance. It yeah, it's a like, little hard to see because it's done differently. I, I, I'm trying to think what the best way to explain this. So let me try, so, to, maybe let I, me make sure I've, I've, I've heard you correctly. So you're saying like, okay, the Fed increases the money supply in every single American's bank account. They just, they put it in. They just do a digital deposit. It's all, it's all. And now we've all got a bunch more money in our bank accounts. And so now, and then um, the, the, the coronavirus thing comes to an end and we all get back out there into the world. And now we're starting to see inflation because, um, because of the increase in the money supply, the long run effects. Now, Hey, I can go out and buy, I can buy two iPhones and, and there's not enough iPhones to go around. And so the price goes up and we're bidding, we're bidding up prices with all this extra money, which is the way it would work. It doesn't just pop up. We bid it up. Right. Um, so you're saying, are you, so you're saying that the only way to take the money out to to, 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 to curb that inflation that was created would be what? The, why why well, couldn't why couldn't the Fed sort of uh, why does it have to be debt like? Uh, you could well, you have you know, to you need the resources to pull that. The people that got all that money that you gave them aren't going to give it back to you for free. They they won't uh, they won't be grateful and say, "Well, you can have it back now for free." You'll have to buy it back. And the the probably the in the immediate sense, the way you'd buy it back is you'd give them bonds. So now you've got a debt. And let's put a number on this in terms of how long. So it's easier for me to make my point kind of mathematically, if you will. Let's say that this cash is injected. And after three years, it would start to cause inflation. So we start pulling it out. And we buy it back by giving people bonds. Okay? After three years. Then what you've really done here is you've, finance this fiscal program of giving everybody $1,000 for first three years with cash and with government bonds for all the years after those three years. And this is maybe why some of the people you talked to kept insisting money was debt. If there's really a commitment to keep the purchasing power of money relatively stable and not to allow high inflation, then there has to at some level be a commitment to pull that money back out of circulation if it would threaten to raise prices a lot. So when monetary injections are temporary to meet liquidity demands in a crisis and keep, you know, in GDP from falling, eventually that money will have to be sort of converted into debt. And um, that will then be a burden. You'll have to start paying interest on that debt. Uh, not immediately, but at some point in the future. Now, what I just said, I suppose, is not true if interest rates stayed at zero forever. Um, but then that raises the interesting question of how much debt could you issue at zero interest rates before the public got tired of it. Um, but but in any case, um, it's it see, seems like it's saying. different so from the... fiscal stimulus, but it's actually giving everybody $1,000 of newly created money is really equivalent to two separate operations. 
One operation is monetary. The government increases the money supply by $1,000 per person by buying bonds. And the second part of that is the government takes that newly created money and gives it away, which is fiscal policy. And you combine those two actions into one, expansionary, monetary, and fiscal at the same time. But whenever there is a fiscal element to it, it does create a sort of debt obligation, an obligation that future taxpayers have to meet, even if it's in the distant future. And um, doing it that way, rather than just having the treasury borrow the money and give it away where the debt is more obvious, it doesn't change it to have it done with newly created money. You're just sort of dividing up that operation into two components. One is monetary and one is fiscal. But as long as you're giving the money away, it's radically different for the long-term government finances than if the Fed just buys bonds with newly created money and holds that asset so they can reverse the transaction later when they have to remove the money. There's nothing that's the opposite of a helicopter. There's no big vacuum cleaner that sucks right. the money back out of circulation. It has to be buyback. back. It's easy to inject the money, to drop it out of a helicopter. It's much harder to get it back. That is, this is the first time I've heard anyone explain the way that downside works. And why can't, I mean, I, in one sense, there is, a, there is a reverse helicopter in the form of the taxing authority, right? So could the right. treasury... Could right, and that's that's what I mean by a, a burden. You you right. tax the money back, and so that that extra money at first at at first would probably be removed with uh, some government borrowing, and but then maybe over time we become more thrifty or conservative and say we need to sort of pay off some of the national debt. But even if you never pay off the national debt, you need to service the interest on the national debt with future taxes. So there's no there's never a free lunch for any sort of giveaway of money. And I'm by the way, I'm not trying to argue against any kind of government spending in this crisis. There may be ar good arguments for unemployment compensation and various things on humanitarian grounds. All I'm trying to do is, in a technical sense, convince your listeners that there's no sort of free lunch here. We can't just give away a lot of money and assume there won't ever be any cost to this program. So to wrap up this marathon conversation that I, I think has helped me understand these issues in a, with a lot more clarity. Um, where do you think, where do you think the Fed, they've, they've certainly seemed to act relatively quickly. Um, are, are, what, what's your sense of um, what they've learned from 2008 and, and whether or not they're going to allow a, a, a bad real world situation to be turned into a, no, a, a second phase nominal disaster? Well, I think they, they learned some things from 2008. And, um, you know, the, um, this was the longest expansion in history until the recent crisis. Uh, I think the Fed did a good job with the trade war last year. And I think normally there would have been a recession last year except for things they learned from 2008 but having said all that i don't believe the fed has been sufficiently um, expansionary you say it looks like they've done a lot 
if you think in terms of the Fed following interest rates down to zero rather than pushing rates down to zero, it's no longer clear they've actually done that much. They've been more reactive than proactive. Now, um, I don't want to be too critical. They've, they've moved quickly and perhaps done more than they would have done in, in the past. And they're facing an unprecedented crisis, a very different type of crisis from what we usually face during a recession. So I'm willing to cut them a lot of slack. There's only so much you can do, obviously, in this sort of a medical emergency where simply throwing money at the problem doesn't maintain full employment. But having said all of that, I still believe they need to do considerably more to improve expectations for the out years next year, the year after. And that consists of switching to level targeting, which means promising to come back to the trend line when they miss, number one. And number two, committing to do whatever it takes in terms of asset purchases so that markets expect them to get back on that trend line uh, over the next few years. And I'm worried that this recession and recovery may be worse than necessary even after the acute medical crisis is over because of the secondary effects we've been talking about, the, the, the excessive hoarding of money, the bearish expectations, which reduce nominal spending in the economy. And that's my focus is right now, trying to encourage monetary policy, which can't do much to address the immediate crisis, to do things that will make the recovery more robust by a very aggressive policy of keeping uh, expectations of future spending higher. Well, Scott, um, thank you so much for taking all this time with me and for uh, being out there now for more than a decade advocating for what I think, uh, you know, is, is maybe hard for folks to understand um, at the just basic level, but um, you stay at it to try to make it understandable in so many different ways. And I really appreciate it. You've helped me understand things in innumerable ways, even in this conversation. Well, thank you very much, John. I enjoyed the, the conversation and uh, uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. So hopefully under better circumstances. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, all right. Have, thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.